I'm hoping that a few of you out in video land remember that three years ago, our family of churches, Fellowship Pacific, finished a five-year pilot project called Partnership 2016, and we voted 95% towards continuing and building upon an interdependent future. As we've done so, God has blessed us. For example, alongside of Northwest Seminary, we've been leaders in creating a paradigm shift in theological education in North America, which we call Immerse. We've also enjoyed unprecedented growth, unity, and effectiveness with our partnering agencies like Baptist Housing, Wings, Kwanos, Sunnybreak Camps, among others. We've held events like governance training, mentor training, consultations, team building, crucial conversations, Berkman assessments, and even EQ workshops with our boards, our church staffs, and students. As we've joined together with churches to create vision, initiate intentional discipleships, and begin new churches, we've been blessed. Most importantly, we've seen churches growing as people's lives are transformed with the good news of Jesus. Altogether, I think we should be pleased at the early results of our partnership. So I'm here today to remind you that it's a good start. It's a good start. Partnership 2016 was the beginning of a journey. It wasn't the end. In itself, it was never the point. Our partnership has a purpose. The relationships we've developed have a reason. The sense of community we pursue has a cause. Now, obviously, there's inherent worth in partnership and in relationships, and in and of themselves, they're very high-value outcomes. But they are not the ultimate point. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear. Yes, there's a lot of scripture passages that tell us that we need to operate together. We could look at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians or the beginning of the great hymn that's in Philippians chapter 2. And in each one of those, unity and fellowship in the spirit are important. They are foundational to producing critical spiritual fruit. But the point, the point is to bring glory to the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is Christ that is at the center of each of the passages I just mentioned. You may remember Philippians 2 begins, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. And then this earliest of Christian hymns ends with the words that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a theme that we see continuously in the Bible. Today, I'd like us to consider just a small part of the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. It's a prayer that occurs just before Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. The idea of partnership for the purpose of glorifying God reverberates throughout this important prayer. Jesus begins in the prayer by praying for himself to be glorified. He ends the prayer asking all believers to be given the opportunity to see the glory that he's been given. And in the middle of his prayer, Jesus focuses on his actual disciples, the 12, in verses 9 to 12, and he centers on that same concept of glory. These are his words. He says, I pray for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory comes to me 
through them. In verse 11, he goes on to say this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they are one as we are one. Did you catch that middle sentence? He said, glory comes to me through them. I'm always startled by this idea that Jesus Christ receives glory because of us. At first glance, that seems dubious. So take a look around you in the church today. I get that I'm talking to you via digital video, and I don't know who you're sitting beside or near, but I remain doubtful. I don't even need to know them to be doubtful. When I look around at our Fellowship Pacific staff, it's downright unlikely. For example, look at this picture of Todd Chapman. He's one of our staff. We're in a meeting in California, and he's trying to imitate his hero, Aquaman. Truthfully, Todd's a pretty great disciple, but really, I am not seeing much ascribed glory here. I see a man draped in seaweed. No glory. No glory. Look at it. You'll see the same. Or look at this picture of another of our highly qualified staff, Lara. She's getting distraught while she's in a race to see who could eat a banana and drink a 7-Up the fastest. She tells me that creates stomach issues for her. That didn't stop another of your employees, one of the fellowship staff, from being competitive enough to do it twice. Twice. These are highly qualified, driven, passionate, sacrificial leaders. But honestly, Christ receives glory because of us? Really? This is maybe one of those times when it's beneficial to remember that the first disciples weren't really the cream of the crop either. Think about this. Levi, he was a disreputable Revenue Canada agent who probably took bribes. These same disciples Jesus is praying about saw a man casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they told him to stop. When children came to Jesus, they tried to keep them away. At the Last Supper, in which Jesus is describing his broken body, his poured out blood, which seems pretty intense a conversation, a whole group of them break into a fight about who's the most important. Peter, the rock on whom the church is built, he's a reactionary who cuts off people's ears. Judas, obviously a thief, a betrayer. Jesus says to them, stay awake and pray because the hour of the passion has come and they all go to sleep. They promise to stick by Jesus through everything and they run away at the moment of greatest trial. But Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer of John 17 are still these words. Glory has come to me through them. So it begs the question, how do we actually bring glory to Christ? What's he talking about? Now take a moment, step back with me, remember that giving glory, glorifying, are extremely important ideas in the Gospel of John, and it's not the first time that they're mentioned. The name of the Father, we're told, is glorified, that is, ascribe splendor, majesty, authority through the glorification of Jesus the Son. It's in the pathway of the cross, we're told, that glory is given to Jesus. It's through the cross, the crucifixion, that Jesus is able to distribute the depths and the heights of love of God to believers. It's by the cross that the purpose of Jesus' life is fulfilled and he's glorified. That's why at his betrayal in John 14, just three chapters earlier, Jesus would say, now, now, at his betrayal is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Because Jesus was both glorified and ascribed glory to the Father 
by his relentless and sacrificial focus on his purpose. Same was true for the early disciples. The same is true for us. We bring glory to Jesus by completing the task he has called us to do. By remembering that our unity, our partnership, that we fought for has a focus, it has a mission, it has a task. It's stated explicitly earlier in this prayer in verse 4. Jesus says he brought glory to the Father by completing the work that God has given him to do. Jesus will continue in this prayer saying that we, you, myself, every one of our churches is called to the same mission. In verses 17 and 18, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you sent me, I send them. We're thinking about We're not called to partnership for the sole sake of being united. We partner in order to accomplish something meaningful in the kingdom of God. And when we are on mission together, our partnership is the mission. Then Christ is glorified. This is reflected in our Fellowship Pacific vision statement, which says that we want to innovatively develop relationships and resources, partnership, that will propel every fellowship church to be accountable to their gospel mandate. Let me repeat that, to be accountable to our gospel mandate. It's a partnership with a purpose, a point. The trick with this is that we so easily, so often, miss the point. I remember a few years ago being audited while I was still pastoring in a local church. Had this long, ridiculous argument with Revenue Canada because, as part of the audit, they wanted us to prove that we had charitable status. I remember talking to the agent on the phone, saying to him, You do know that you are the agency that grants the charitable status, right? You would be the people we would send others to in order to verify that we actually had it. So, if you don't know that we have charitable status, how are we supposed to prove it? It seemed like a gigantic exercise in missing the point. So Church of Jesus Christ, Fellowship Pacific, let's not miss the point. We need to be partnering together. We need to have true community in order to complete the task Christ has given us. Because when people surrender their lives to Christ, when disciples are being formed into the likeness of Jesus, then both the Son and the Father are glorified. It seems straightforward, but I do recognize that this task would be impossible if we were on our own. In fact, in this prayer, Jesus continues and he's praying for his followers because after his ascension to heaven, he was physically absent from the world and no longer able to protect the disciples. The good news, of course, as you know, is that Jesus had already told them that the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the convictor, the guide to all truth was coming when Jesus left. Those early disciples needed the Spirit, as do we, because it is very hard to maintain unity or to take advantage of the opportunities that grow from our partnership in the gospel. Let's face some reality. At a human level, our partnerships are always fragile. I think we know that. Satan is pretty good at his job, tainting us, tempting us, taking every chance to shred our unity, incredibly active, creating hate and evil in our world. It's maybe why in 1 John, John writes that there's three indicators of true followers, truth, 
obedience, and love, all of which are critical components of partnership. Because the kind of evil that rips us apart is the opposite of truth, lies, and false teaching. Because the kind of evil that creates strife is the opposite of obedience, it's disobedience, it's inaction. Because the kind of evil that builds pride and independence, the opposite of love, hatred, contempt, critical spirits, lack of kindness, arrogance, false humility, pseudo-piety. And we've all seen far too many cases where lies, disobedience, inactions, lack of love has shattered relationships, pulling local churches or families of churches apart. In the extreme cases, something happens that's so painful and wrong, it involves police and charges. And unfortunately, that seems to be in the news media just about every week right now. There's recurring cases caused by insecurity or ego or desire for power, confusion between methodology and theology, often expressed as, you know, my ministry or my room or my parking spot or my music or my pastor. There's absurd cases, churches fighting over where the cross sits on the wall, who gets to paint the nursery, the direction the grass is being mowed, you name it. We are each capable of fighting over most anything at any time and then wrapping it all up in spirituality. We are each capable of having our preferences trump our promise to Christ. So let me just say it outright. I am totally capable of having my own taste, ego, and pride overwhelm my desire to serve Jesus. So are you. But every time I do or you do, It's a capitulation to the father of lies in whom there is no truth. Every time we do, it's a distraction from the mission that we are called to complete. And every time we do, it hurts our partnership. Every single time, it minimizes the gospel of Jesus Christ and diminishes the glory that belongs solely to the father. Because that's true of me, Every day as I see myself more clearly, or try to at least, I'm humbled by the scale of the grace of God. But there's another side to this story. Because while partnership is difficult, it comes with a built-in opportunity. What is that opportunity? Every day in our partnership, there's a chance to demonstrate the life-transforming power of Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus goes on, he prays, protect them by the power of your name, the all-consuming, the all-inclusive, the all-surpassing power of the creator God, so that they may be one. He goes on in verse 23, for all believers praying, say, may they be brought to complete unity in order to let the world know that you've sent me and have loved them. So follow this. We glorify Christ when we complete the task, the mission, but it's extremely difficult to do because we're so easily torn apart. Therein is the opportunity because everybody, every person in our Pacific region, whether Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Okanagan, Shushwap, the North, you name it, everybody knows what disunity looks like, discord feels like, disagreement smells like. They see it every day in most places they go. Our world is a toxic waste dump of hatred, of disunity, of prejudice, of self-serving actions seems to be the cardinal rule of politics, with the result of ever-increasing segmentation of society, north, south, east, west, city, rural. We see it in the horrible acts of violence that occurred in March in New Zealand. We see it in churches that start to fight and split over the tiniest of things. 
We see it in ourselves when we act out of self-interest at work, when we hang on to our stories of personal injustice in our families, when we discount people, when we seek revenge. We all know what that looks like. Hopefully, it bothers all of us. So please hear me. Every second we fight to live in unity, every moment of brotherhood, every hour of love, every day of gracious truth, every week of obedient service, every year of Christ-like sacrifice proves to our world that the power and the love of God is not a fantasy. When we choose to live and to act in unity is so glaringly contrary to the world around us that it's indisputable proof that the cross, the death, the resurrection of Christ has transforming power in the lives of people. There is power, more than enough power, to radically change the eternal direction of lost people. There is power enough to restore love to an abused woman. There is power enough to rebuild marriages. There is power enough to reconcile parents and children. There is power enough to draw the diverse world cultures around us into one eternal godly family. When we are united in Christ with fellowship in the spirit, being in the world but not living by the values and the lives of the world, instead, choosing to live out the love and the mission given to us from Christ in partnership, it usually means we're sacrificing to complete the task. And the result is that Jesus is glorified. And that is the purpose of unity. So we need to fight for it. We need to settle for nothing less. I think we know this. I get that it's the epitome of preaching to the choir. But we sometimes need a reminder to live this out personally, even when we don't feel like it. We've come a long way as a family of churches, but too often we still act in isolation more than we act together. We are inherently independent people. Too often our personal likes and dislikes seem more important than the unity we need to demonstrate. We know that our partnerships are fragile. We know, I think, that it's a spiritual battle for us to maintain it. Truthfully, it's hard enough for us to maintain it within our own staff at the Fellowship Ministry Center, even though we know how important this is. It's a fight to keep the right focus with all of our churches and partnering agencies to operate together. It isn't easy for any of us to do this. I'm not suggesting it's natural, I'm not suggesting it's simple. However, if we're gonna be obedient to Christ, being living examples of the outcome of his high priestly prayer, taking advantage of the inherent opportunity to see Christ glorified, we must continue to make active choices to partner together and not become passive, not accept anything less. I remind you that Fellowship Pacific is you. We always operate through the local church. We, in fact, work for you. Together, we set a target of 2,500 new leaders. We're about 1,000 towards that. Together, we're trying to plant and add 30 new churches. We've got about eight added so far. Together, we are ensuring discipleship plans are implemented in every church, 34% of the way towards that. Together, we're looking for people to come to Christ in every church, every year, no exceptions. As a staff, we wanna be publicly accountable to you for our part in achieving these targets. But your church is also a part, and you as an individual have a role to play. 
as we act together, leveraging our collective strength. Not for the credibility of Fellowship Pacific or for the reputation of our leaders, our board, or even your pastor. We do this because we are accountable to our gospel mandate. Remembering always that our unity, our partnership, is not really the point. It has always been, and it must be, always about the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, please continue to join together for his glory. And thank you for this time.